Greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. James White along with you, along with uh, Rich Pierre, the um, the favorite person of um, all the... We have a huge French population in Arizona, just just massive. Did you get a lot of requests for your uh, your flaky croissant? Uh, uh, you did get... <laughs> That's good. That's good. I think there's actually a small town named after him uh, somewhere somewhere in France. I'm not really sure where. I try to keep an eye out for it during the Tour de France, which begins this weekend, actually, if it makes it all the way through. Um, because the last I heard, they literally were saying that if a team, and I, this includes all their support personnel and everything else, that if a team had two positive COVID results, they'd pull the team from the race. Can you imagine if you got into the third week? Because those of you who don't know the Tour de France, Tour de France is like, for those of us who are cycling fans, um, the Tour de France is the Super Bowl, uh, and it's three weeks long. <laughs> and in fact, normally you you have nine weeks of the Grand Tours uh, during the cycling season. All of that, of course, has been completely trashed and messed up by the worldwide global panic Um over the 99.99% survivable um, coronavirus, um, which would not have stopped us from going to the moon, but it would today. Uh, let's just put it that way. Anyway, um, and so everything's getting crammed into, they're still doing all three of the, I think they're doing all three of the, the Grand Tours, and they're just cramming them all together uh, in the fall, uh, where people are normally starting to wind down. Now it's this. And so the Tour de France starts, and I'm... I'm pretty certain you're pretty excited about this. Yeah. So, so all sports, but does it? Yeah, but does it matter? Just the just the aerial views of your beloved fatherland, or motherland, or whatever it was. Um, I would think would just thrill your soul because I mean. And then the last, you know, the last stage, being on the Champs Elysees in in Paris. I, I mean, uh, but look, for a lot of folks, that doesn't matter how long ago it was. Um, you should still, you should still be very, very focused upon that. But anyway, uh, yes, Rich is with us as well. Uh, how did I get onto that? Oh, I want to announce something uh, right up the, at, the, at the start here. Uh, a couple things. This is going to be October 2nd and 3rd. Uh, it's sort of in the way, isn't it? I'll get that a little bit out of the way there. October 2nd and 3rd, two debates, Textus Receptus versus Critical Text. This will be uh, Explain Apologetics. Uh, this, these are the same guys who did the uh, thing we did on Four Views of Apologetics. We were going to, initially when I was contacted, it was, would you like to do a four-man debate? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And we've gone back and forth, back and forth. Please notice how this is going to work. It's going to be a Friday night, Saturday morning uh, situation here, which is a little bit of a bummer for me. Uh, it messes up my Saturday long ride, but we'll... Uh, We'll we'll find a way around it. Uh, even even here in Arizona, October third is still going to be a hot day. I can assure you of that. Um, but we can ride inside later if we have to. Anyways, um, two debates Friday night, Saturday morning. Uh, first debate on Mark sixteen nine through twenty, and the second debate on Ephesians three nine. Um, obviously, the focus here is well, the focus from me is going to be where it has been from the start and has to be. I try to be consistent. 
and that is, I believe, that the um, TR-only position being promoted by Dr. Riddle um, is ahistorical, uh, and it is uh, inconsistent. And uh, I will win the debate the instant that Dr. Riddle <laughs> makes reference to any textual data whatsoever in regards to the long grinding of Mark. <laughs> Or any textual data whatsoever in regards to Ephesians 3 9, because it doesn't matter. Um, here's, here's what I just want everybody to do listen to the first debate. Uh, the long grinding of Mark has a large amount of uh, textual evidence uh, in the sense of large number of manuscripts, uh, early references. Um, my primary problem with it is that it's not the only ending of Mark that exists, and therefore, since we have extremely primitive manuscripts that do not contain it, and then we have multiple endings, this is indicative of a disruption in the transmission of the text. Um, and as such, uh, we should not place the kind of dogmatic authority into that textual variant that you would in that which contains no textual variants. Um, and so what you're going to hear is you're going to hear about, uh, you know, uh, the, the broad testimony of the Byzantine manuscripts, the long grinding of Mark, and, and you're going to hear some explanations as to why the uh, Codex Washingtonianus has what it has and, and, and things like that. Um, and that's fine. That's great. And there are, there are perfectly fine uh, scholars that make perfectly fine arguments for the longer ending. I... I am not convinced that uh, that overcomes the um, absence in a small number of very early manuscripts and the existence of the other endings. Uh, that, the, the key thing for me is the existence of the other endings. But all of that aside, because there's entire books that have been written on that, please uh, take the time to, to read some of the books uh, that have been written on that particular subject. You'll, you'll get to hear everything, uh, more material than we'll be able to get into in that time period. But what I want you to do is I want you to hear that. Hear the positions and then listen the next day. Because Ephesians 3.9 has none of that evidence. And so if that evidence supports longer ending of Mark, then the consistent application of those arguments should mean that you do not have the reading of the TR at Ephesians 3.9. Consistently. There won't be any consistency. Case closed. Yes. I wanted to point out a uh, textual error that I've just discovered uh, here uh, on this, and that is that uh, standard time doesn't happen until November. So that That's is true. a textual variant right there that needs corrected. Yeah, that's true. Because that's be going to be EDT. EDT. Yeah, it should be DT. And, yeah. and so okay. imagine how many people will be misled because of that error. Uh, we're, the only ones that, we're the only ones that care about it because we have to, because uh, we don't play with our clocks. But. Now, now, wait a minute. Is, is that, that's not a King James uh, uh, text there, is it? Is that a – no, oh, okay. All right. Got no idea. Got no idea. But anyways, that's uh, coming up uh, October 2nd and 3rd. Uh, I'm just telling you now. Uh, listen in carefully, and I believe you will be able to see. You know what? I am. I almost feel like the camera has gotten bumped, and there's more room behind me than there used to be. You don't. Th you don't think so? Uh, okay. Uh, 
I was the last one to touch it. Okay. All right. Whatever you say. Um, okay. And then uh, let me uh, double check this here. Oh, great. I haven't installed the right one. Um, so this isn't going to have it. But I believe it is – oh, wow, this is so old. It still has me going to Australia. Um, I believe it will be the, the 5th of September, I think. I, I need to double-check that. But I think on the 5th of September um, – eh, I, I want to make sure I've got all, all my details. We're, we're going to do a program. I'll, I'll get the details, and we'll, we'll be able to put this up. We're going to have a program um, that's going to be dealing with – the key text in the Texas Receptus, but I, I don't have um, everything I've got in front of me. I forgot that I hadn't installed my... I'm using a new calendar program, and this has the old calendar program, and so it's 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 not allowing me to open it. It's, it's probably around there someplace, but... Um, so there's going to be some, some interesting discussion on these uh, textual critical issues over the next month and a half or so, and so I hope you'll keep an eye out for those particular things, I think they will be useful. Real quickly, um, I knew I had seen this guy. Uh, Tom Buck posted a, a picture, and then an article came out. Megachurch pastor and Democratic Senate candidate says abortion is consistent with Christianity. And I'm, I'm looking at the picture, and I'm going, and I looked, and it, and it said Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, and I'm going... Yeah, something just happened with that guy. This is the guy that quoted Isaiah 53 and applied it to the congressman at the guy's funeral uh, only a few weeks ago. Lo and behold, he's running for office as a Democrat. Shocking, shocking. Um, and yet he, uh, he says, uh, I've been focused on women's health, women's choice, reproductive justice, Warnock said. That is consistent with my view as a Christian minister, and I will fight for it. Uh, then when pressed on that in regards to Roe v. Wade, he says, I think that human agency and freedom is consistent with my view as a minister, he said. Uh, woke religion destroys Christian religion. And here is a good example of it. Um, here, is, here is a black minister defending the greatest mechanism ever designed to destroy, to be a, to be one of the main weapons in the destruction of the black family. Um, how many hundreds of thousands of black babies have been torn apart in the womb by abortion? That and and so, but he, knowing that, knowing that reality, listen to the terminology: reproductive justice. Think about. The evil, the moral evil that is required to talk about saline abortion, dilation and curatage abortion, uh, late-term abortion procedures, which are nothing but infanticide. Uh, that you can watch on sonogram these days. Think think of the, the the intensity of evil that it requires to equate those barbaric acts with the phrase reproductive justice. 
What is that supposed to mean? In what possible world can you defend meaningfully the idea that you are doing justice in this fashion? Uh, that, that's what I'd like to know. I really doubt that Pastor Warnock puts himself in a position of having to answer meaningful questions about this very often. But this is one of the reasons why the testimony of the Christian church has been muted. And it's been muted for a lot of different reasons. But this is one of them. Because the other side can always find somebody to deny the fundamentals of the faith. I mean, if, if, you, if worse comes to worse, you go to Union Theological Seminary, it's like they have a, a speaker's bureau of apostates they can just sort of send out to do their thing. Um, but here you have someone who calls himself a, a Baptist pastor who uses the term reproductive justice. Obviously, we live in a day, once again, we all know it, 1984, completely fulfilled, take every word, redefine it to mean its opposite, but then use it amongst people who are still using the old vocabulary with the new meaning, so as to create utter chaos in society. And that's what we have going on here. So, racism. Well, you've redefined it. Once you redefine it to where it's no longer an act of the will, it is no longer sinful. It is not sinful to be a white person. It's not sinful to be an Asian person or Hispanic person. It's not sinful to have all of your ancestors come from either Scotland or yeah, Britain. Um, I try to suppress that part of my heritage. But anyways, uh, it, it's, it's not sinful. That is not sinful. And so once you redefine those things, then you turn around and you call someone a racist and you're hoping that the old meaning of that term, which carried proper moral opprobrium, will still communicate, even though you're using it in the newly defined sense. Here you use the term justice to be the opposite of what justice is. It is not just for people to engage in illicit sex. It is not just for the current most popular song in the, the land to be a filthy, vile, disgusting, subhuman, uh, what other terms can we come up with? Celebration of perversity. Um, performed by two black women. Well, not just two. There, there were many others in various states of undress. Um, and I think there was a, well, I don't know if she was technically black or not. It's like asking Sean King black. No, he's not. Um, but people identify as such, I guess. I don't know. All I know is it's a, it's perverse. It's disgusting. Um, that's, that's part and parcel of why we have the situation in our land that we have. That's why it is, it is astonishing to me that, once again, as the statistics show, a black woman in America is three times more likely to seek an abortion than a white woman in America. Why is that? What are the reasons? Targeting of Planned Parenthood. But when you can have the utter dehumanization 
of black women being performed by black women who are now being paid tens of millions of dollars to do it. That comes from the community itself. And when you can have men in that community who have 28 children by 16 women. And in the context of the number of abortions taking place, then the, the entire structure of the family has been absolutely decimated, crushed, destroyed, destroyed. And the results, well, evidently you can't talk about it without being a racist. So you can't come up with solutions because you can't talk about the problems. And so you come up with this kind of language, reproductive justice, which is a, his mouth should be washed out with soap is how my mom used to put it. Because that is an absolute abuse of the language. It's an absolute abuse of the language. But that is the pastor of the 6,000-member Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. You should be nicer, James. I have no respect for people who defend the murder of the unborn in a day when we have more knowledge of the humanity of the unborn than we ever have before. Don't ask me to respect the the doctors in the Nazi death camps, and I'm not going to respect the people who today can know exactly what abortion is and refuse to listen and do this kind of thing. Talk about reproductive justice. I have no respect. Don't ask me to have it. Don't ask me to have it. See, in my day, you actually earned respect. You earned respect. You didn't, it just wasn't given to you because. That's what's changed. All opinions now deserve respect. No, they don't. No, they don't. Um, my, my opinion on Pakistani rugby, cricket, Pakistani cricket, yeah, <laughs> does not deserve the respect of anybody. Because I don't have a clue. I, I could not name a single Pakistani cricket player. I happen to think cricket's fascinating to watch, but that's because I travel in places where people actually watch it. Um, but, I, but I couldn't. My opinion on that is not equal to everybody else's. That whole idea is stupidity on our part. So anyways, I saw that and I was like, wow, um, that's where that came from. Okay, I, I forgot what that, what that was. I know it is. I know. It's MLK. Talk about a, a complete um, destruction. I, I mean, there you have a situation where the content of the character is irrelevant. The color of the skin is all that matters. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, as little children. Yeah. Well, anyway. Okay. I um, wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um I, I might as well go ahead and, and mention this really quickly. Um, a couple weeks ago, we uh, we we melted the uh, the internet when we had my friend John Cooper on from Skillet. Um, John posted a video yesterday, and uh, of course, he and I have been talking about this since it started. Um, but uh, he lives in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and when I first saw the first news about it, I texted him because I knew he was, he was away. 
and I'm like, dude, uh, what's going on? And they've returned home, and yeah, it's not far away, and you know, we need to pray for Kenosha. And I was listening a little bit to some news coverage today. I, I've I've got somewhat of a good feeling about which direction it's going there. Because I mean, these people are shipped in from all over the place to 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 burn and riot and and do all the things they do, and I just don't think they want to be staying in Kenosha. They 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 go to places like Chicago because there's lots of places. And Kenosha is not that far from Chicago. Um, that's why I think a lot of those people people showed up. So I've I've got hope that things are going to calm down there. I'm not going to go into the discussion of the shooting right now. I've watched the video. I've talked with some of my friends who are former police officers uh, in leadership positions and shared with them my analysis, and they've said, yeah, you're spot on. Um, But more information will come out, just as more information has come out on the George Floyd situation. Um, I think there's already enough information to make commentary, but I'd, I'd like to have more before we do so. But there is one thing I do want to say. I saw a, it scrolled, as it always does. Um, the Senate in the state of Virginia, the Virginia went Democratic in 2019. If you want to know what's going to happen in January of 2020, 2021, if Joe Biden and the Democrats win the Senate and the House, if they, if they take over, if you want to know what's going to happen, look at what has happened in Virginia. Because they took over the governor, Senate, House, there was no breaks left. And the Democrats have simply been working overtime to pass as much leftist stuff, limit just destroying rights left and right in the state of Virginia over any and all objections. And that's exactly what's coming in January of 2021 if the Democrats have the House and the Senate and the White House. Uh, that's how they. That's that's how the left works. Doesn't matter. Constitutionality is irrelevant. The Constitution's irrelevant. That they've already they've already shown that. So that's 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 coming. But they just passed a bill that's now going to go to the House, which is also run by the uh, by the socialists, um, to lower the status of assault on a police officer in Virginia. To a misdemeanor. And there's a picture of a cop on the story. And the thought across my mind was was just this. Why? Stop and think with me for a moment. If you have a 17-year-old son, let alone daughter, I'll be perfectly honest with you, I've, I've never felt women should be police officers. And I, some of the videos I've seen of them being beaten mercilessly uh, has verified that in my in my thinking, but uh, or in combat roles. But you have a 17 year old son, and he comes to you today and says, "Dad, Mom, I'm thinking about becoming a police officer." What are you going to say? What are you going to say? We're losing the professionally trained ones left and right. They're retiring. They're getting out. 
And they're getting out because they know that the people who control them, the politicians, the leftists, are on the side of the mob. Not on their side. They're not on the side of law. They're not, they, they're not on the side of justice, constitution. They, they, they took an oath to support that constitution, but they, they violate it. They don't care. The Darwinian worldview gave them the basis for doing that, by the way. Um, but they don't care. And so they, they got nobody. They're, they're being told, they're being paid a pitifully small amount of money to go out and risk their lives. And then they're being told, you cannot defend yourself. And if someone, I mean, again, the videos of cops getting killed, they are unfortunately online. It's sad. But, but you can see it happening. People being shot at point-blank range. So why would you tell your son, take a job that's going to pay low end to middle end, which is going to constantly put you in a place of danger, but now you cannot defend yourself. The other guy has to be given the first shot, minimally. And if you're of a certain color, you can't shoot back at all. Because if you do, it doesn't matter. The, 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 the scenario is already written. It doesn't matter. So just keep that in mind. Um, we're, we're talking about, well, we need better trained officers. Are you going to get better trained officers? Who in their right mind is going into a police academy right now? Do you really think you're getting the best prospects here? Smart people look at the situation and go, now is not the time. We did it to ourselves. We did it to ourselves. I don't blame them. I do not blame them for a second. They are being abandoned. They're being given a completely impossible job. Thankless job. So, when all these leftists who are all for the destruction of the Constitution, destruction of the United States, and defunding the police, when someone starts breaking into your house at 2 o'clock in the morning, who are you going to call? Well, if, there's, if you're put on hold, or if there's nobody coming, it's your fault. You did it. This was, this was, your, this was your doing. Completely. Just saw it as it scrolled by, and I was like, wow. Yeah, well, there you go. There's, there's where it is. All right. There are so many um, issues I want to get to today, but been having some conversations on uh, online, and um, what happened? Oh, I did have that. That <laughs> there it is, right there. Virginia Senate approves bill to downgrade penalty for assaulting a police officer. Okay, there it is. Well, I too many tabs. Too many tabs. What happened? Online recently, uh, over the past couple of days, remember, I think it was last week, we did a Radio Free Geneva, and I responded to uh, William Lane Craig and the video he put up on Romans chapter 9 and pointed out that he <laughs> he, pu- he pulled the flowers on Romans chapter 9. He, he read through about verse 6, jumped down to the end of the chapter, and moved on from there skipped over, didn't even read, interact with, take notice of, bring into the consideration, 
the key elements of Romans 9, 7 through 24 or so. <laughs> it's, it's just interesting. Uh, that, that seems to be the, the best way people have to get around Romans 9 is let's just not actually read it. Let's just just let's just give some overall overarching assertions about what it's about and let's not actually walk through it. Um, been there, done that, got the debate t-shirt in 2015 myself. So I know exactly how that, uh, how that works. And a conversation ensued because Seth Dillon, uh, promoted that video in a, in a tweet. Now, if you wonder who Seth Dillon is, he's uh, now the CEO of Babylon B. Now he didn't start it as I understand. Um, that was Adam Ford who has moved on to other things. And now uh, Seth Dillon is the CEO of Babylon B. And so someone tagged me because if I recall correctly, something had been said about Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and the issue of saving faith and faith is a gift of God. And had said, you if I recall, they had said, you might want to look at what I had written on the subject in the Potter's Freedom, or somehow I got tagged. And so I started seeing, you know how if you, if you don't do Twitter, you start seeing comments coming through your, your textual flow, shall we say, um, your timeline. And so I, you know, I, I saw this for a little bit and, and then finally saw some tweets that made me go, well, no, no, wait a minute. Uh, that's okay. I'll go ahead and, you know, start commenting on a, on a few things because it was all the standard stuff. It was, it was, it was Erasmus and Luther. It was stuff we've gone over and over and over. I've written one, two, at least three. You could probably say up to five. If you throw in a couple of the other books, uh, books on these subjects, we've done debates over the years, um, lots of radio free Geneva's and things like that. And so Seth and I start going back and forth and I would go to a certain text and I'd go to John chapter six. And what does he do? He, he, he does the John 12 escape route. Now, those of you who've listened to this program for years knows exactly what I'm talking about. When you go to John 6, 44, what do people do? They jump out of John 6 into the future for the audience in John 6 to John chapter 12, interpret a text there out of its context. They never, ever mention that this is where Jesus is being sought by the Greeks, and this is from where Jesus is talking in response. That never meets with the Greeks. Um so he's talking about nationalities here uh, because it's the Greeks that are seeking after him. So it's Gentiles and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, jump over there. If I be lifted up, I'll draw a man unto myself. And I, again, provided the answer that I didn't come up with these answers. These have been provided for a very, very long time back into the earlier part of the church, but especially since the Reformation. And I pointed out that if that is the case, then you're stuck with universalism. First of all, you're, you're misunderstanding John 12. You are 
really presenting the idea that the cross is an attraction to all people, when in fact the biblical teaching is the cross repels. First Corinthians chapter one, preaching the cross is them, they're perishing foolishness. Um, and in fact, Paul himself makes God's election the determining factor as to whether the cross is something that is the power of God to you or foolishness to you. It's whether God elected you or not. That's that's what First Corinthians chapter one says. That's that's its whole message. That's why he says it is by his doing you're in Christ Jesus. So no man may boast. That's what First Corinthians chapter one is all about. That's that's its essence. But so you end up with this weird view from John chapter 12, and then you read it back into John chapter 6, called eisegesis. This is not how you do exegesis. This is not how you handle the text of Scripture. You take something from that's from the future, read it back into a text that the audience could never have known of at that point in time, and say, voila, there it is. That's, that's, how, that, that's how you should understand it. The problem is, once you do that, it turns you into a universalist. Because in John 6, 44, the one who is drawn by the Father is raised up by the Son. And so if all people are drawn universally, that's what you did with John 12. You read it back into John 6, now Jesus is going to raise them all up on the last day. And it's very clear in John chapter 6 that every time it's raised up on the last day, it's being raised to eternal life. It's, it's, it's not just raised and then judged and sent into hell or something like that. No, it's universalism. So I point this out. I've gotten no, every time I've gone to the text and pointed to grammatical issues, um, issues along those lines, I've gotten no response. What I've gotten is the standard, well, it can't be that because of all these other verses. And when we go to the other verses, we find out they're not saying what Seth is saying either. So one of the key issues is, um, well, here, just a little while ago, um, no text has been modified, he says with a straight face. That's me. As he edits his Bible in dozens of places to make the words world, whosoever, all, and everyone mean only the elect. You have audacity, I'll give you that. Now, he's told me he's read my books. I don't believe him. I'm sorry. Sorry, Seth. I don't believe you. Because you're a smart guy, and if you had, your responses would be much better than they've been so far. I don't think you've read them. I, I really don't. Um, so, when someone says world to me, I go, so, as John says in 1 John chapter 2, we are not to love the world, right? But God's to love the world, and we're to be like God. So, you've got a contradiction, right? Because world always means the same thing every place it's used, right? See, it's so easy to, to, to tear apart the synergistic, eisegetical gymnastics that man's tradition has forced upon a lot of people. We've been doing this a while. This is, this is not our first rodeo. We've heard all this stuff before. The term world is used by John minimally 10 different ways, possibly 14 different ways in his gospel alone. So, are you talking cosmos? talking ion? You talking, what, what are you talking about? Are you talking about inhabited world? There's lots of different ways to even translate various Greek words as the word world. So, where have I said world means only the elect? Very common. Again, you you read Dave Hunt. That's what they always say. But let's be specific. 
let's let's what what's the text? Whosoever, wow. Shall we go back to the open letter to Dave Hunt back in 2000 on what pasha pistuon means? Everyone believing? That started quite an interesting movement uh, back at that point in time. Didn't It shouldn't have. It's, again, we're not saying anything hasn't been said by generations before us. Every generation has to deal with this. Why? Well, what's the human tendency? To diminish man's power and authority or to exalt man's power and authority? You, you tell me. What is more likely that mankind will seek to control God's sovereignty and power and put us in charge? Or the other. It's pretty obvious. That's why in every generation we have to deal with the constant creeping humanism uh, that comes in. And so, uh, you know, when he says, you have audacity, I'll give you that. Well, (laughs) thank you very much. But what I actually have is the text and you don't. That's the difference between us. You've got your traditions. And when you say, well, but there's all these clear texts, and then I go to them, and I showed you Philippians 1.29, no answer. I gave you lexical meanings. I gave you syntactical categories. I didn't, I don't think, I don't remember quoting Greek to you yet, but if you want to go there, we can do that. That's fine. But I was giving you the data that underlies the English translations. And if it's audacious to to go to those things, great, fine, wonderful. But the comments have been rather interesting as well. And you're seeing the same type of stuff uh, in and out. And here's, uh, for example, in the uh, commentary on that last tweet that I had read, the soul doctor... Uh, says, try explaining away this all. Try explaining away this all. Well, I don't want to explain away anything, but I'll be happy to interpret a text consistently across the New Testament. We'll, we'll do that. And what we have is 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. Oh! Well, once again, let me just, just point out, here's the current edition of Potter's Freedom. And uh, we have... Right here, beginning on page, uh, this is page 135, chapter 6, CBF's big three verses. Big three verses. So, Chosen But Free, Norman Geisler's book. Stop doing that. Um, Norman Geisler's book. The big three verses, the three verses that he quotes over and over and over again, but doesn't bother to exegete. Just assumes a meaning, throws it out there, shows no evidence that he's ever read any Reformed interpretation of any of these texts. Just throws them out there as already established, clearly meaning what I mean texts. What are they? They're Matthew 23, 37, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 2 Peter 3, 9. And so, starting on page 135 and going to page... 151, you will find a fairly extensive discussion of 1 Timothy 2. And so 1 Timothy 2.4 starts on page 139, 
And so we've got one, two, three, four, five, six and a half-ish. Just six and a half-ish pages. Nothing. We could probably do a lot more. But dealing with this particular text. Now, has the soul doctor taken the time to find out? what You know, these Calvinists, they, they've got seminaries and they're really big on original languages. I mean... Man, those Puritans back in like the late 1600s in, in England, those Puritans who were Calvinists, by the time they were in their third year of graduate training, and so this is when they were very young, um, third year, they had to be able to debate in Greek. Not read Greek. That was already given. Debate in Greek. I mean, these people are weird. They've you you look at you look at some of the major commentaries that are on key books like Romans and Galatians and stuff like that and hmm they're so many of them are written by Calvinists it's it's strange why they 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 just must not have read these passages <laughs> no we have and you see we have this thing we have this overriding consideration of the need to be consistent need to be consistent because see one of the beauties of reformed theology is we see all of christian theology as a whole so what i believe about salvation has to be consistent with what i believe about god what i believe about the trinity so so that's why uh, a couple weeks ago uh, at church when i was preaching on particular atonement limited atonement as some people call it my whole point was this is Trinitarian atonement. This is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working in harmony with one another. So last Sunday, when I preached, say, a continuation of that into Hebrews chapter 7. Though we barely survived that because we just found out yesterday, it was so hot. You know why? Someone had been working on the AC at the church and had taken the, uh, the, the uh, what do you call them, in the power? Breaker had turned the breakers off. The fans would run, but the, the, the units wouldn't. We had no AC going from four to six o'clock on Sunday afternoon with a packed house. And I was preaching. Uh, Woohoo! That was. <laughs> uh, they've got the breakers on now. So, what? Yes, yes. Well, I was I was preaching fire, brother. I was preaching fire. <laughs> Yep. Oh, yeah. There is there is some ex excess hot air there. No two ways about it. Um, but it will be cooler. I'm just letting everyone know you can come back this Sunday. I am preaching again. Uh, I'm going to be preaching on the perseverance of the saints. Why is it that Christ loses none of his sheep? Um, why is it that he can pray as he does in John chapter 17? Why is it um, that Jesus says he comes down out of heaven to do his, not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. The will of the Father for him is he lose none of those given to him. We're going to be looking at that uh, this, uh, this Sunday. I decided Jeff needed another week off because he's working himself. He, he's not going to make 70 at the rate he's going. So you're telling me that the folks who stayed with you? Nobody left. Were, per, were, were saints persevering? They were saints persevering. There, they were saints there's, persevering. There's an allegation. We have, to be a, made we have here. a dear. We have a dear, dear lady. Uh, her husband's a deacon in the church, and she's 39 weeks pregnant, and she did not leave. So uh, there were. She's gonna. She's gonna have that little little one this week at some point. Um, so yeah, our people. But when I walked up to our, our music guy is standing there at the beginning, uh, and I walk up, and his forehead is just beaded. 
just all the way. I mean, you could literally go like that, and it would have you would have splashed the guy next to him. It was it was that bad. Ooh. Anyway, so how do we get on to that? I'm just letting everybody know if you if you go to Apologia, it's going to be cooler this Sunday. Honestly, it's working now. Um, we should have known because we've had hotter Sundays. Uh, we've had hotter Sundays. Not many. Uh, we 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 officially hit 110 again today, and that makes 49 days now. Can you imagine? 49 days this year of 110 and above. The record in the past was 33. It's 2020, folks. I mean, it's 2020. Anyways, what were we talking about here? Oh, so uh, the point is we have covered these things many, many times before. And while I know what the Arminian, synergistic, provisionist, whatever interpretation of these texts are, for some reason, I don't see that the other side knows in response. So uh, if someone knows the soul doctor, uh, you might want to let... Um, I, uh, I can't tell. Honestly, the picture, I can't tell that whether that's a male or a female. I really can't. Um, there's, I'm not, and I'm not going to be going clicking around looking for stuff here. But So in answer to the soul doctor, try explaining away this all. Here's the all. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Straightforward, right? Here is my response. I, I gave a one-tweet response. Try rereading that in the context of verses 1 through 7. Tell me, does Jesus mediate between every single human being and the Father? Does Jesus intercede for every single person? Yes or no? As of right now, uh, I don't see a response to it. But we'll see. Maybe somebody will direct this person to what I'm saying here. Let's take a look at it. That is? Okay, all right, if you say so. These days, are you sure? Look, in our generation that was, but these days, are you sure? I'm not going to tell you. We're just going we'll to we'll let, we're gonna let that one slide. So, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties, it is, it's as big as it's going to get. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Now, let's walk through it. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made, and here is the text, huper ponton anthropon, in behalf of all men. In behalf of all men. Now, in normal human language. Would that mean that the Apostle was urging Timothy to have continuous, never-ending, formal prayer meetings where the entire Ephesian phone book, big city, by the way, the entire, and most tradition puts Timothy there in Ephesus, 
the entire Ephesian phone book is brought out, and you start with the alphas, you end with the omegas, and then you restart again. Is that what anyone would have understood? No, it's not what everyone would have understood. What would they have understood? That he is encouraging that prayers be made for all kinds of men. Why? Well, look at the very... It's the same sentence. Remember, verse divisions are editorial. You have huper, okay? In behalf of pontone anthropon. Huper basileon. Now, please notice, we continue a string of similar forms here. So, anthropon, basileon, antone, those being in positions of authority. Um, so, you ha- these are all connected together. This is all one sentence. So, Paul himself tells us what this anthropon means in behalf of kings. Well, if you're already... If you were already praying for every human being on the planet, you'd be praying for kings anyways, right? No, why does he have to say basileon? Why does he have to say kings? Because they were the ones who were bringing persecution. They're the ones who have power. They're the ones who want you to bow to Caesar's authority. And if First Timothy is being written toward the end of Paul's life, maybe he's already in prison. So maybe you're angry at the representatives of the Roman Empire, the kings who have these authorities. You, you've, you've locked up our dearly beloved Paul. Paul says, no, you pray for them. You pray for them, why? So we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. When you pray for them, that changes your attitude toward them. Good lessons for us today. One I certainly need to be following. I mean, it's hard to be praying for certain people in our society right now. It's really hard. When you know they're they're seeking to make the life of your grandchildren a living hell. It's It's hard to pray for those folks. But the point is, Basileon is not an individual. It's a class of individuals. And so in the language, you have an entire string of genitives and those define each other. So if you have kinds of individuals, class of individuals, then that is consistent for what all men is. In behalf of all kinds of men, in behalf of kings, and all the ones having authority, in order that we might live, lead a tranquil, quiet life, and all guidance and dignity. So, from the start, we have the apostle making reference to what? Categories. Kinds. I didn't write it. He wrote it. If you're going to dismiss it, you have to disprove it. If you ignore it, that means you don't really want to listen to what Scripture says in the first place. Right? All right. This is good and acceptable before or in the sight of God our Savior. 
who pontos anthropus thelai sothenai, who desires all men to be saved, kai eis epignosin aletheios elthine, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So, quite clear, right? God has a salvific desire, and it's an equal salvific desire, to save every single person in the exact same way. Now, you immediately stop and you realize no one to whom this was originally written would ever have thought of that. They wouldn't have. These are people who are fully aware of the history of God's redemptive acts in Israel, and they know the Old Testament. They know that God said, you, have, you only have I known, speaking to Israel. The term yada, that, that intimate knowledge, chosen. You only have I chosen. They, they know that, that God destroyed the Egyptian army. They know that God brought the, the plague, the firstborn, upon the Egyptians. They know that God has destroyed the Assyrians, and he's used the people of Israel to destroy all sorts of nations to, to make that land their own. And then when they sinned, used foreign, lang- foreign lands, and then destroyed those foreign armies, such as the Assyrians, Isaiah chapter 10. They know that God has not shown the same salvific desire in the past that he showed toward the people of Israel. That is a fact of history. That's a fact of the Bible. They did not use our Western way of individualistic thinking. They were not Americans. We think that way. We demand our individual rights. It's got to be in the Constitution, right? That's not how they thought. How would they have understood this term? How would they have understood this sentence? Well, let me, let me present it to you in its context. Given that we've already been talking about types of people who desires Pontos Anthropus, all men, including Roman governors, Roman senators, people in authority, the very people persecuting the church and imprisoning Christians and killing Christians. It was only going to get worse until the peace of the church in AD 313. And then it was going to be the Roman church doing it a thousand years later. Um, but including kings and those in authority. God wants, God desires their salvation as well. So you pray for everybody, because when you pray for somebody, you are making yourself available and ready and prepared to be an instrument in bringing the word to them. So, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. True knowledge. Epinosis. Of the truth. So this is true salvation. And that means his desire extends to all kinds of men, including kings and those in authority. That's the context that Paul provides. Don't blame me for that. And don't say that I'm modifying the text. You are modifying the text when you ignore the context itself. You are modifying the text when you insert your universalism into a text that the authors would not have even understood. You are doing that, not me. 
not me. And there are a bunch of you sitting there right now, go, right, and you, if you're honest, you'd go, I had never even thought. I had never even given consideration to those preceding verses. But he's still wrong. <laughs> and you know it. You've never even thought of it. But let me show you something else you didn't think about. Now you notice, take a look at this. You notice how uh, 5 and 6 are laid out here. This is an essay on the 28th edition of the Greek New Testament. And you'll notice how it is placed into poetic form. It's placed, placed into verse form. Uh, that indicates that on the part of the editors, the assumption is that this is either an early creedal statement or a hymn fragment. Uh, or maybe even just a poem, but probably a hymn fragment, creedal statement, placed in this context <clears throat> so as to be more easily memorized. And you can see how it does flow. Uh, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself an antilutron, antilutron, Ransom, who pair pontone in behalf of all, the witness at its own time or at the proper time. And then he says, it was under this that I was appointed a, a kerux, a, a preacher, a proclaimer, an apostle, uh, so on and so forth. So here is sort of, this is, it's a valuable text to put alongside 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for some of these early fragments of creeds and hymns and uh, extremely valuable insights into the most primitive period of the church. But I want you to consider the theology that it, it, it presents to us. Uh, first of all, especially to my Muslim friends, high scar theos, there is one God. Christians have always been monotheists, will always be monotheists. It is the foundation of everything that we believe. There is one God, and there is one mesites, mediator, theu kai anthropon, between God and man. And that between is coming from the very lexical meaning of mesites, because it's, it's a mediator. So a mediator mediates between two or more parties, but since only two are listed, then between would be the appropriate English translation. But notice the repetition. Heis gartheos, heis kai mesites theu kai anthropon. So, one, where, where else have, you, have we seen this? Just a little side issue here, just to keep the thinking going, if you've already heard all this before. Um, but this is the same terminology as the Shema in the Greek Septuagint. The Hebrew of the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad, but in Hebrew, that, that Echad is Heis, one. One. And so, just as in the Greek expanded version of the Shema that Paul provides in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in that creedal statement, one God, Father from whom, one Lord Jesus Christ, using all the language from the Greek translation of the, of the Septuagint. Uh, here you have heist being emphasized yet again, but used both of God the Father, 
and then of the mediator between God the Father and man, the man, the incarnate man, Christos Jesus, uh, the, the incarnate man, Jesus Christ, uh, who gave himself. Very important. Again, if you're dealing with Muslims, the self-giving of the Son, absolutely central. And it's the parallels to the Carmen Christi, Philippians chapter 2, very, very interesting. The one who gave himself, giving himself as a ransom, an antilutron, who per pontone, in behalf of all, the testimony at the proper time. He does this. And he is the ransom. And if that who per pontone is universal... The ransom is universal, and the ransom has been paid. It's not just a potentiality, which again raises another issue. But here's the question that I was asking um, the soul doctor. Jesus is described here as a mediator between God, Kai Anthropon. The verse that has been quoted, uh, try... uh, explaining away this all is first Timothy 2 4 and there you have has pantas anthropus same term all men so are we talking about different men here if first Timothy 2 4 says that God wishes to save every single individual human being and for every single human being to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between that God and every single individual human being, the man Christ Jesus. Then Paul is assigning to that term man a universal meaning, and Jesus is the mediator for all men. What does he mediate to them? In whatever system you believe in. Because see, among synergists, there are a myriad of opinions as to what is required on the part of man for this potentially provided salvation to be actuated. So you have people who have tons of things that must be done, entire sacramental systems that have to be fulfilled. You have to remain faithful throughout the entirety of your life, and you got to keep your nose clean, and you got to make sure not to die in mortal sin, and blah, 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 blah. And then you got other people say, no, it's just a matter of tipping your hat, man. Just as long as you just go once you go, yep, I believe, tip the hat, boing, ticket punch, going to heaven. And you got everything in between. But if you insist against the flow of the text, which began talking about categories of men, if you ignore that, throw it out, bring in a Western way of thinking into an Eastern written document, and say, no, that's what this is about, then you are stuck with universalism. Or you're stuck with a mesites, a mediator who cannot save. Because if he's interceding for every single human being and every single human being isn't saved, then his intercession is not enough, right? You are saying that his intercession is important, wonderful, lovely, we should be thankful for it, but 
it's not nearly as, as important or powerful as the will of man. Let me give you a more consistent understanding of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Who desires to save all kinds of men, including those who are kings and those in authority, and to come to knowledge of the truth, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and those men that he saves, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom in behalf of all kinds of men, including Jews, Gentiles, those in, in uh, positions of authority. You can go through all the places where Paul does this type of thing. So Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, Scythian, barbarian, you know, Colossians 3, etc., etc., who gave himself as a ransom in behalf of all of these men, the testimony given at the right time. It's perfectly consistent. There is absolutely nothing in the text that mitigates against it, and it is absolutely consistent with Paul's own theology. And it flows from the actual context. The other reading does not. It has to posit a break and go, yeah, he was talking about praying for all kinds of men, but that's, that's not relevant here. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now, let me show how this is then consistent with uh, Paul's own theology, assuming, my theory, that the book of Hebrews is a Pauline sermon uh, written in Greek by Luke, because it's not Paul's style, but it's certainly his theology. Let me remind you of this tremendous passage in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save Pantelis, Eistot Pantelis, excuse me, Eistot Pantelis, forever or completely, those drawing near by him to God, always living to make intercession before them, or for them, in their behalf. So, he is able to save. Dunatai Sodzain, able to save. He is able to save. He has that power. He has that capacity. There is a specific people that he saves. Hearkening back to those who came to the temple on the day of Yom Kippur. It is not their coming that saves them. It's not their coming that makes them special. He is able to save completely. Why? Why does he have this capacity? Why does he have this power? Because he always lives to make intercession in their behalf. Whatever else you do with this verse, what it's teaching is his undying nature allows him to remain in the holy place to intercede for a specific people, and that gives him the power to save them completely. That's what it says. That's, that's a, one of the most important parts of the apologetic of the book of Hebrews. You take that out, and the book is no longer arguing the same thing and arguing in the same way. So, Christ saves those for whom he intercedes. If this is indeed Paul, then in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, that mediator between God and men what does that mean? If the men is universal, 
then you've got universalism. If the men is all kinds of men, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, as is said in Revelation chapter 5, John chapter 11, etc., then you have here the elect. The elect of all people, of all nations. He is able to save them completely because he always lives to make intercession for them. It's his intercession that avails. Nothing they do. His intercession that avails. All right. That's consistent. How about our old favorite Romans 8? (laughs) Same thing. Romans 8.31, Therefore, what shall we say to these things? If God, who per hemon is before us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but who per hemon, pontone, in behalf of us all, delivered him over, how, how, how shall he not also together with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against the elect of God? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, rather who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who also is interceding in our behalf. So, some people identify it as the very pinnacle of Christian revelation, Romans chapter 8, the high watermark. And what are we told? In the heavenly realms, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Why? Because God's the one who justifies. And Christ Jesus, one who died, yea, rather, was raised from the dead, who also intercedes in their behalf at the right hand of God. That's Hebrews 7.25. That also helps you understand who is it who draws near to God through him in Hebrews 7.25. It's the elect of God, Romans chapter 8. If you allow these texts to actually, you know, be by the same author, about the same subject, utilizing the same verbs, uh, same context, that kind of thing, sort of important. But that's the foundation of then asking, who will separate us from the love of God? No one, because Christ intercedes for us. The Father's justified us, the Son intercedes for us in the very presence of God, the right, right hand of the Father. So, I've provided a contextually based, grammatically based, lexically based interpretation that follows Paul's thought and Paul's teaching, both in the close context of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and the broader context of his teaching of what mesites and the concept of intercession would mean. So, I hope that is useful to the soul doctor, uh, but also uh, to Seth Dillon as well. I would challenge you to think about this. I would challenge you to think about why would any Christian, because you're going to have to, Seth, you got to understand where you're going to have to go here. Once you're faced with this information, you've got to deal with it. You can't just ignore it. You, you, you've, got to, you've got to deal with this. And if you, if you deal with it, here's what you're going to be stuck with. And it's, it's a sad thing, because I, I, I it's, it's just, it breaks my heart when I see Christians laboring 
to find a way to make sure that Christ can fail to save his people. But that's what they do. Literally, you, you, will, you will find people who will go to these texts and they say, well, it doesn't really mean that because Christ intercedes for someone that they will actually be saved. Because it, you know, it, it, he tries, he really does try, he tries very, very, very hard. But still, it's not really up to him. The Father tries, the Son tries, the Spirit tries. It's the triune try. But the triune God fails. If not assisted by, enabled by, allowed to, by the almighty will of the creature. So, that's what synergism is. That's its essence. Can't get away from it. The many of my synergistic brothers are inconsistent at this point. They they don't recognize the tradition that they're holding. And as a result, you know, they they go the way they go. They're inconsistent. They're inconsistent. Let me just close with one last text that I'd like to share with you because it will be relevant on Sunday when I will be preaching again. Uh, Some of you know that uh, we live stream. We didn't live stream last week. It may have been just we're sweating too much to bother. (laughs) But uh, I I think that Jess back will have the, have the stuff that we need. Um, But we normally live stream the sermon somewhere around 445 our time depending on when it gets started. And Jeff has ruined me. Um, I almost never go less than an hour now. Um, it's just, it, I've just, I've given up uh, trying to, yeah. Uh, but when you only have one service, you gotta, you know, you gotta cram it all in there. So we, we, we'll go two, two and a half hours uh, for the whole service. Um, but uh, we do put it up live. And so if you're interested in a sermon on the subject of the perseverance of the saints, that takes f- that takes fully seriously the reality of apostasy. They went out from us, so it might be demonstrated they're not truly of us. There are apostates, and we are surrounded by them today. There's a lot of apostasy going on. Someone has been saying for years there's going to be a wave of apostasy coming. Um, yeah, and so we're in it. Um, that'll be Sunday afternoon, uh, 4 o'clock. Mountain Standard Time. And we'll just let you figure out what that is wherever it is you leave. <laughs> That's 7 o'clock Eastern. What? No. 4 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. We're always Mountain Standard Time. No, I'm telling the truth. What do you want, what do you want me to say? What time do you want me to give? Three, do you want me to say 4 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time? But we're not in the Pacific Time Zone. No, we're not. We didn't move. (laughs) 
You know how bad this is going to get by the time we're 70? I, I blame whoever is stupid enough to keep re, redoing this thing. I mean, someone always introduces legislation every year to get rid of it, but it never passes. So I, I, I give up. There's not going to be any legislature in the future anyways. Anyhow, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Um, this beautiful, beautiful text uh, from... From Jesus, he's he, it's winter, which is really nice right now. I'd like to just think about what that feels like, <laughs> even in Israel. I'll take winter. I'll take winter. Um, he's walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Jews surround him. Say, how long will you literally lift up our souls? Uh, if you are the Christ, then tell us openly, plainly. And Jesus' answer is, them, I, I told you, you didn't believe, you're not believers. The works which I do in the name of my Father, these testify concerning me. But you're not believers, you're not believing. Because you are not of my sheep. Now you see, people today say, well, anybody can become one of the sheep just by believing. But Jesus explained their unbelief by their nature. You're not of my sheep. He had already done that in John chapter 8 when he talked about, why, why can't you hear my words? Because you don't belong to God. Oh, but, 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 if, but if I choose to hear, then I'll belong. No, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus said. In fact, we never did get around to that. And I, I, I'm sorry about this. Leighton posted that video where I was looking at John chapter 8 and we're at specific 43 and 47. Why can't you hear what I'm saying? Because you don't belong to God. He who, he who belongs to God hears the words of God. You don't hear it because you don't belong to God. Exact opposite of the mindset of evangelicalism as a whole, provisionism specifically, but synergism as a whole as well. Any system that is grounded upon the primacy of the autonomous will of man in the faith decision fundamentally has to say this at, at one point or another. Um, and so here you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. Verse 26, you are not of my sheep. Now, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. This is not some esoteric, uh, you'll get divine revelations from Jesus about which car to buy in the car, lot, car parking lot type thing. Um, this is the intimate relationship that exists between Christ's sheep and himself that harkens back to the same type of relationship existed. I mean, you've, you've heard all the stories. You could mix all the sheep together in a big community pen. And then when the shepherd would come to the gate, he'd call his own sheep and his sheep knew his voice and they would follow him. The other sheep would not. So he could call his flock out and they wouldn't become all mixed up. There is a owner owned relationship that exists there. 
And this is the promise that Jesus has here. And it goes beyond that. I know them. I know them. Kago Genosko Alta. I know them. That Those are beautiful words. Uh, you want to be known by the one who gives himself in your place. This is personal salvation. Not, not I know an empty sheepfold that is impersonal and it's up to you to fill it up. That's, that's synergistic salvation. Um, no, I know them. And remember, this is relevant to the issue of the perseverance of the saints. Because what does Jesus say to those he casts away from him in the book of Matthew? Depart from me, for I what? I never knew you. I never knew you. These were people who said they were Christians. These were people who said, I, I follow the Lordship of Christ. I've done these things in your name, etc., etc., etc. And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus cannot say that to his sheep. He knows them. And since he knows them, I give eternal life to them. Now, just, I don't think I'll ever in the rest of my life be able to encounter a passage like this without stopping and saying to people, don't miss what this means about the majesty of the person of Jesus. So much of the evidence of the deity of Christ is in words like this. Can you imagine anyone else saying this? Can you imagine a prophet? Just a plain old prophet. Exalted prophet. Can you imagine Isaiah? I give eternal life to them. No. It's blasphemy in the mouth of anyone but the incarnate son. And I give, and the very idea, God is the one who has the power to give eternal life. Every Jew knew that. And that's why in only a matter of a couple of verses, they're picking up stones to stone him. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. U me apolontai aiston iona. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, what is amazing, and again, sad to me, it breaks my heart. When professing Christians, and I've had the conversation, I have had the conversation on professing Christians. I'll show them this text and they'll say, and they shall never perish. And they'll say, well, yeah, no one can snatch you out of his hand, but you can jump out. You can jump out. So the sheep could stop following the shepherd and could jump out resulting in their own perishing. Even though it says, and they shall never perish. No one is able to snatch them out of my father, out of my hand. No one has that power. No one has that capacity. But then, almost just so that, just as in all of the Gospel of John, there is this glorious, purposeful balance always kept between father and son. My father who gave them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to harpazine, to grab them, to grasp them out of, snatch them out of my father's hand. Now notice the phrase, who gave them to me. Sound familiar? 
John chapter 6, all the Father gives me will come to me. This is the giving, this is the drawing, this is, this is God's sovereign action of giving his elect people, his lima, his remnant, to the Son. Because he becomes their substitute. They are united to him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. He becomes their forerunner into the holy place. That's why we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's all Jesus, all the time. Absolute exclusivity. No room for inclusivism here. Absolute exclusivity. And it's in that freight, that context then that you have John 10 30. Ego kai ha pater hen esmen. I and the Father, we are one. I and the Father, we are one. Now, very briefly, Notice that when I said, we are one, there are people who get confused. They think that what Jesus is saying, I am the Father. No, he's not the Father. If he was trying to say, I and the Father, we are one person, then he would use a singular verb. He didn't. He used a plural verb. S-men is plural. So, I and the Father, we, still maintaining the distinction, are one. Now, you will be able to find study Bibles and books and everything else that when talking about the unity of the Godhead and things like that, this will be one of the verses that's quoted. And I've always been a little sensitive to that because it's true, but it needs to be understood in its context as to why it's true. This is not some ontological statement that says, I and the Father, we are one being. That that is taught in Scripture, but it's taught in a different way. There's a context here. Always have to follow the argument. What have you just had? In verse 28, I give eternal life to them, never perish, no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, it's greater than all, no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father, we are one. In what? In the salvation of God's people. In bringing eternal life to the elect. They are one. There is no um, division between the Father and the Son. Now, that's relevant to the other stuff that we've been talking about today, because if the Son intercedes, there is going to be unity between the object of his intercession and the object of the Father's election and salvation. You never have to worry about the Son's going to intercede for someone the Father doesn't want to save. So if the Son's intersection can save, then the entire synergistic system flies out the window, just by that one consideration. But the point is that the unity of the Father and the One and the Son is so close in the salvation of God's people. Now, does that still teach the deity of Christ? Of course it does. This could never be said of any mere prophet. So that's why it is remains relevant, but it ne- you need to understand this because the cults understand this. I've seen Jehovah's Witnesses quite rightly protest against Christians using this text because the Christian didn't know what the context was. And they would say, well, yes, it's, it's talking about one in bringing about salvation of the sheep. They were right. They didn't see what that then meant, 
They needed a Christian who knew it in context to explain that to them. But that's the important thing to keep in mind. All right? That then becomes the background of the picking up the stones, quoting Psalm 82. Jesus identifies them as false, as false uh, judges, quoting from Psalm 82. And that's what you've got in John chapter 10. But the point being, what a wonderful consistency. Here you have his sheep. His sheep. And what does, what does Jesus say to the Jews who do not believe? You're not of my sheep. And what does Jesus say about his sheep? I lay down my life for whom? For the sheep. So if in one context, he says to one people, you're not my sheep. And he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. Might want to think through what that means. I want to consider what that means. So, anyway. All right, love having the opportunity to get into the text in that way and to consider those uh, particular things. And that just happened to take us right to an hour and a half um, on our time. I wasn't really looking at the clock, but hey, worked out perfectly. Um, I'll try to get the information up on that September 5th program. Um, uh, I don't know if I've been sent... a a thing on it yet. I don't want to jump the gun, but we'll we'll get it up. If I do have it at home, I'll I'll get it up on social media. Sorry, uh, and we'll we'll make sure everybody knows about. It. Yes, sir. Real quick programming note. Um, we found out two days ago. You already know this that the problems that we've been having, still having problems today. Even though today streamed really well, we're still streaming at 360p. So uh, the the problems haven't cleared up yet. The apparently there's a a traffic thing going on to where our node is, according to Cox, saturated. A node is a fiber optic connector that connects all the coaxial systems to the fiber optic lines, blah, blah, blah. They're going to split that node and get us onto a separate node, and all these problems are supposed to clear up, but it takes two or three days to make that happen. So we're hoping and praying that by next week all of this has gone by the wayside, and we're back to normal. So that's that. We'll see until that node gets saturated. <laughs> it's always something new. It's always something new. Uh, so anyway. All right. Thank you very much for watching the program today. Lord willing, we will see you next week. God bless.